Today on We Hear, Elton John is telling it all in his new book. Olympic figure skater and skincare enthusiast Adam Rippon stops by, and you'll hear about Mark Cuban's controversial shark tag investment. Oh my god. We're on page six? Yeah. Oh. No. Yeah. Another divorce splashed across page six. Page six would have a field day. Hey there, I'm Maggie Coglin. And I'm Ian Moore. Welcome to We Hear, the Page Six podcast. We hear all the celebrity dirt from our exclusive sources, and you hear the story behind the story. Hey, Ian, have you seen this video of Lady Gaga falling off a stage? I did, Maggie. What? what? I saw it on Page6.com. Where was that? It was on Page6.com. No, but where did she fall off the stage? Uh, it, it uh, It was in Vegas, actually. So basically, Lady Gaga, and it looked pretty... Painful. Dangerous and painful. And one fan said, like, I thought that she died, um, but apparently she was okay. She invited a fan named Jack to come on stage during a song, and then she... It's been alternate, alternately described as jumped into his arms or dry humping him, um, where she jumped on him and sort of like straddling the guy, and the guy lost his footing, and they both he was like holding her, and they both fell off the stage in pretty oh dramatic form. But apparently they were okay, and she got back on the stage and like the show must go it. on. The show must go on. But I actually know an exclusive <laughs> detail about this story that no one else knows. Maggie, will you tell us? You know who was in the audience at the Lady Gaga show? Who? Suzanne Summers. Oh, it's a big week for yeah. Suzanne Summers. I know that because she told me yesterday. You might have noticed this Suzanne Summers picture, right, went viral because she, for her 73rd birthday, she posted a picture of herself naked. In a field. Naked in a field. Nothing exactly. says 73 like, I'm naked in nature. Yeah, so people are kind of obsessed with this. And actually... I spoke to her. I did an exclusive interview, Maggie, with uh-huh. Suzanne Summers about this um, this photo and and what happened and why she decided to post it. And basically, it turns out that she she told me that she and her husband, who got married, her husband took the photo, mm-hmm. and um, they got married in 1977. And she said they've lived in the same house for 43 years. It's on nine acres in the desert in California. I think it's, it's in Palm Springs, right? And yeah, near Palm Springs. And she was, she said, we were wandering along one of the paths and I took my top down. It was hot. The flowers were flowering. The bees were being. It just <laughs> seemed like the right thing to do. And she also told me that I'm probably the only woman in Hollywood who's enjoying aging. Nobody expects Mm. you to take your clothes off at 73. I've put a lot in naturally. I think this picture says that. It was a hot day, and I just wanted to take my shirt off. Go on, Suzanne Summers. Exactly. And she also, then she started to actually get into her, so she called me from bed. She was in bed in Vegas when she called. She was resting up to go. Why is Suzanne (laughs) Summers at 73 living a more fun life it was awesome you and i in our youth yeah she said that she was in bed resting up for the lady gaga show she's in vegas celebrating her birthday with her husband and this rocker named paul rogers from the band bad company Mm -hmm. she was going to go see the next night with play with leonard skinnard and they were there with him and his wife and um yeah she was like partying in vegas and then she also started to tell me about her uh her love life with her husband, um, and she told me, I'm in love, and when you get to this age, love grows. It's deeper. Um, I've got him all juiced up on testosterone, 
and I'm all juiced up on estrogen. Woo. It makes a difference. His skin is so good. He is sexy. Then she also told me that <laughs> she, so I don't know if you know this, but to you, like, who is Suzanne Summers to you, like, in your generation? So, or what, how, like, what, when I say Suzanne Summers, like, what do you think of? Obviously, I know that Suzanne Summers was on Three's Company iconic role but in my youth i watched her on tgif on a show called step by step where she played the mom in a blended family i believe which were two people who had kids was that the show with patrick duffy yes it was oh my god was the theme when days go by no that's full house yes oh my god that they're always in the kitchen with this yeah so that's my reference but Everyone Damn, knows. Maggie, she she was Chrissy on Three's Company. Was she's she Chrissy? Chrissy Snow? Yeah. See, to me, that's like very. Yeah, I think of her as Three's Company. But also Thigh Master Suzanne. Thigh Summers. Master, which obviously yeah. look out. Wow. Hey, I mean, she looks. You know what? I have to applaud her because I do think in Hollywood there is a moment when people stop seeing women of a certain age as sexy, and she's really like, I'm still here. I'm thriving. I'm naked in a field. There was right. a lot of backlash to her posting this photo, too. Yeah. People were like, you're 73. Cover yourself. You shouldn't be doing this. Like, Suzanne Why Summers not? is living in this skin. I'm I, proud of it. I also have to admit, and this shows what I know, and I had gotten – so before Suzanne Summers' birthday, I had gotten pitched to basically like, hey, do you want to talk to Suzanne? You know, her book is coming out, and it's her birthday. And I thought, you know, I have to admit, I was like, I mean, I loved Three's Company, and I, but I was like, Suzanne Summers, mm-hmm. you know. But then it's like she posts the pic, and it was like this huge story. So there you go. It shows what I know. Suzanne Summers. It's huge. All right. Now let's get into our first story. Elton John's memoir is finally here, and it's really interesting. Now, The Rocket Man has been touring since 1970. That's almost 50 years of performing live. But this is the first time he's really told his life story. He's made fans wait to get the scoop on everything from his life as a child, to his friendship with Princess Diana, to getting sober and finding love. And let me tell you, it was worth the wait. The book covers a lot of ground, and it's filled with tons of celebrity anecdotes, like the time Elton did cocaine with John Lennon. In just 384 pages, Elton's captured what he calls the real me. And now that he's covered it all, is there anything left for Elton John to sing about? Well, Maggie, I think that there's some behind-the-scenes stuff going on with this book. Because I think, I mean, the timing is pretty interesting. Because Elton John releases this book um, at the exact same time that there's a major awards push Mm -hmm. starting for his biopic, Rocket Man, yep. right? So it's not, I think it's not just about the book. And actually, he and um, Taryn Edgerton, who plays Elton John in Rocket Man, gave a live performance in LA um, the other night um, with a live orchestra and a screening of the film um, at the Greek theater in LA. And literally, like Paramount, um, you know, blasted out release about this. And it, and it says, which I've never seen anything kind of this. Up front, it says, mm-hmm. Rocket Man launches into the awards race. Watch Elton John and Taryn Edgerton perform live at awards race launch. So you think this is really an elaborate Oscar bid? Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the timing obviously helps because you have right. the book. You have now they're like doing the awards push for the movie. Mm-hmm. He's like pulling out all the stops. And then also, I don't know if you saw this thing, but Elton John has dissed the Lion King remake. Mm. And I think that's also kind of also a reminder to the Academy 
you know, about his previous film work. I mean, the thing that's different is on Rocket Man, he's an executive producer. Mm. Um, he's won an Oscar before for music. But basically with the new Lion King remake, he said he was disappointed by it and they messed the music up Ugh. and basically said that it was a slap in the face that they didn't really uh, involve him. And he said the soundtrack hasn't had the new soundtrack, I should say, hasn't had nearly the same impact in the charts that it had 25 years ago when it was the best selling album of the year. He said the new sa- soundtrack fell out of the charts so quickly. I, I think that this is all part of you know, raising his profile in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He has a production company. He could win an Oscar as a producer. And the book certainly doesn't hurt to remind Academy voters of his career in show business. Yes, the book is kind of a long, in-depth look about his career. But also, like, there's a lot of celebrity names that he drops. You know, he's talking about doing cocaine with John Lennon. Helping John and Yoko Ono get back together. Talking about going to a dinner party where Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone and Richard Gere are kind of competing for Princess Diana's affection. He talks about Tina Turner. Like, there are very few famous people who are not name dropped in this book, which is amazing because it's like this guy's been around for 50 years. He has Grammys. He sold more than 300 million records worldwide. So to me, I was like, why now? Which your theory comes in strong here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because the book is called Me, mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting because it's a one-word um, title, which is similar to, you know, Keith Richards had a huge book with Life. Um, and in Elton John's book, he actually disses Keith Richards. Mm. You know, that Keith Richards had, had a ghostwriter named James Fox who had to kind of really do some sleuthing to go through and find out a lot of anecdotes about Keith Richards. Because Keith Richards' memory might not be quite as good mm-hmm. as Elton John's. But Elton John, apparently, just he remembers all these anecdotes and he just has anecdotes to burn about everybody in Hollywood. The other thing is the book is being praised for having a self-deprecating tone. Mm-hmm. So it's like he he does go after a lot of celebrities in it and, you know, even including like about David Bowie says like I don't know what his problem was Mm -hmm. and like sort of these quips about all these people Um, but he you know he is um, he has a sense of humor about himself so it's like he uses the same lens on himself as some of the other celebrities in the book yeah and he talks about one big theme is like uh, his struggle with alcohol drugs he suffered from bulimia And he talks about helping other people in Hollywood get sober. But, you know, to speak to that point, he says that when he was trying to intervene with Donatella Versace, she says, my life is like your candle in the wind. I want to die. Just like he could have left that out. (laughs) Candle in the wind was one of his best selling songs. You know, it holds the record for the best selling single of all time. And here she is trying to get off drugs, like taking a jab at his big hit, which I love that he included. It just seems like this is a bit of like a throwback. I feel like it used to be, I feel like in publishing, this used to be a thing where you had these celebrity tell-alls and they were very big sellers. But like, I feel like um, it hasn't happened in a while. I mean, there might be like a book and there's like one little detail in the mm-hmm. book, but I feel like there's such a, a publicity sort of stranglehold on celebrity now. And I feel like celebrities are 
so reluctant to, you know, they divulge personal details about themselves, usually when it's to get sympathy when they're heading into something that they need to promote, like right. a movie. And it might be like my battle with addiction or I faced this or that or something they overcame. But it's usually not something that sort of makes them look, you know, too bad. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think it's interesting that these books are coming out. There's also we reported that Lisa Marie Presley has uh, has signed a book deal Mm -hmm. um, and is going to reveal a bunch of stuff about her marriage to Michael Jackson. I also wrote an exclusive recently that Dolly Parton has just signed Mm -hmm. um, a book deal. Jenna Dewan has a book coming out uh, next week in which she's talking a lot about the Channing Tatum divorce, which they had kind of said, like, we're friends, it's all good. And now some parts have leaked in which she's saying, like, hey, I felt really blindsided when he started dating Jesse J. I found that out on a plane the way that everyone else did. I wasn't given a heads up, which is like, oh, the inner workings of the first person you date after a high profile divorce. Not so pretty. Right. And yeah, so I'm actually I I think this is like a great trend and I and I hope it continues. By the way, and speaking of, you know, the the Keith Richards, you know, competition, maybe um, Elton John has called him a monkey with arthritis. Oh, he also called Madonna. (laughs) He also said Madonna looks like a fairground stripper. Elton John has some good one liners. Hey, guys, it's Maggie, and I'm here with Adam Rippon, figure skater, memoir writer, owner of Amazing Skin. Oh, my God. First of all, everyone here has amazing skin. Really? Yeah, everyone. You have amazing skin. You have amazing skin. Wow, yeah. that's high praise. I'm going to tell you a secret. I got Botox for the first time okay. a few months ago, and mm-hmm. it's fading out, and now I feel like my face looks like Fifth Avenue. Really? Yeah. It's very smooth. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> but as a person who spent so much time in a chilly ice skating rink, you it would think saves, you had the natural benefits. Here, I really have a theory that like a lot of the people that I skate with look very young, and mm-hmm. I think it's because they're in the cold so often. Yeah, I, I 100% would think It's like that's cryotherapy why. for your face yes, every day, yes. The original cryotherapy. Okay, so let's talk about this book. How hard was sitting down and writing this? Way harder than I thought. Yeah. Um, I knew that there were different stories that I wanted to include. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you sit back and you write them and I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't writing like an expose. Right. I wanted to write something f- for myself to kind of uh, process everything that I've gone through. Mm-hmm. And um, I really wanted to show and highlight that I, I'm a funny person. Right. Um, because that kind of feels like what is my next chapter. Mm-hmm. And this felt like a really good way of combining um, everything I've gone through and sharing those stories, but also integrating the humor. Um, because that was, it's another really important part to who I am because right. humor has been a way for me to cope with a lot of things that I've yeah. gone through. Yeah. So you write about like extensive workouts, not eating as much as you should have, feeling exhausted. Yeah. When you look back at that now, was it a difficult thing for you to cover in your book? Um, when I look at it now, I'm like, wow, you really were insane. Right. Um, and it's funny because like, I know I'm like, it's so funny to have an eating disorder. Um, but when you like look at it now, I, I realized the insanity and the things that I reasoned to myself that were completely normal that were not. Right. Um, and 
I'm really lucky because in the later half of my career, I was able to really recognize a lot of those things that were nuts. Mm-hmm. And um, because I addressed them, I think is why I survived and was able to be in the best shape of my life when I got to the Olympics. Because mm-hmm. I had to address a lot of these issues because I think because of like the way that I was eating, I you know ended up breaking my foot a year before the games. Um, and once I started to address the way I was eating and focused on being healthier, I, I feel like that really helped me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like something we read about you many times post-Olympics was this quote that you said to Al Roker about having a backpack with thousands of condoms. Yes. Has that been blown out of proportion or is that legit? No, that's pretty legit. Because, uh, you know, you... (laughs) Set it straight. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) why would I lie? You know, I have nothing to gain from saying I have thousands of condoms with me, you know? Um, (laughs) It's not a talking point. It's not something I thought it would further my career. Right, right. Um, I... You know, you hear these stories of all these athletes and they go through thousands of condoms Mm -hmm. at the Olympics. And I was like, well, where are they? Because I was looking for them everywhere. Um, One thing that a lot of people don't know is that if you are an Olympic level, world level, national level athlete, you're in a random testing pool Mm -hmm. um, for uh, doping. And at the Olympics, that's heightened even more where you um, will have random drug testing um, all throughout the the time that you're at the Olympics. Mm And um, usually it's a urine sample, but at the Olympics, they take urine and a blood sample. Mm -hmm. And so you need to go to the medical tent um, because they can't just, you know, wait for you outside the bathroom. They need to take a blood sample. So you need to go into where they basically have like all of the sterilized needles and all of that, you know, stuff. So I'd been looking for these condoms for days. Could not find them a freaking anywhere. And finally, I'm going to get my blood sample, and I see something out of the corner of my eye, something shining. Mm -hmm. It's the glistening glow of a generic condom, which it says in Korean, wrapper, in the (laughs) LED light. And I'm like, there they are. And I go over to them. They are nothing special. Mm -hmm. They are knockoff Trojans. Nothing to write home about. I thought they'd have Olympic rings on them. I thought right. I'd give them as like care packages to my friends. Like, look yeah. what we got. Look what we did. Um, no. But that did that stop me? No, I've been looking for them for days. So I took the basket of about a thousand condoms and shoved them all in my backpack because nobody knew where they were. Mm-hmm. If anything, I was going to help spread the news. Right. I didn't, though. I kept them all for myself. <laughs> I love it. Are you turning 30 next month? I am. How does that feel? Uh, really good. I'm so done with being in my 20s yeah over it it's over it. Uh, i'm done <laughs> like i have finished my 20s <laughs> and you finished them well i will say this is a great crowning achievement i i'm i'm very proud of what i've done in my first 30 years mm-hmm. um but i i feel like 30 is this year you know there's so many big things that have like changed in my life well one of writing this book um all the opportunities i've gotten to pursue and um i think the biggest thing is like ending like my skating career mm-hmm. um which I, I still love to skate but i'm not competing anymore i'm not going to be you know competing in the next olympics which is a question i still get like mm-hmm. are you excited for the next olympics i'm like yeah to to watch <laughs> yeah like maybe if i party. yeah like maybe if i vacation they're like oh, can you wait to go to beijing i'm like and were we going on vacation <laughs> i'm not I competing can. yeah yeah <laughs> um so i i uh it's just a big milestone in my life so that's mm-hmm. why i felt a good time to write this book but and that's why i'm also ready for 30 yeah okay so something else i want to talk to you about was Whose books did you read in preparation for writing this? Um, I uh, uh, 
My favorite book that one of my favorite books that I've ever read was Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. Mm -hmm. And I just she's someone that I really look up to. I I love um, how funny she is, her work ethic, the different projects that she's tackled, how she is a writer. She's also a comedian. Mm -hmm. And um, in that, I see a lot of like the things that I want to accomplish as as well. So in in the process of writing this, I always thought, you know, Bossy Pants is my book's mother. Mm. Like maybe she gave me up for adoption really early. She doesn't know about me. I'm (laughs) looking for my birth mother, but like I found it. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is great. Yeah. What is next after the book? Do we write another book? Well, you know what? I think a lot of people have asked, like, why write a memoir at 29? Right. Um, And I hear you um, loud and clear. But I feel like maybe this is like part one Mm -hmm. because my whole like skating career felt like a lifetime of of work. Mm -hmm. And it felt like the right time for me to kind of write this book as a way of entering a new chapter of my life. Mm -hmm. So when you enter a new chapter, you've just written a whole book. Mm. So it just, it felt like a really good time for me. And, and, you know, I think one struggle that a lot of athletes goes, goes that they, um, a lot of athletes go through Mm -hmm. is, um, I do speak English as a first language, um, (laughs) by the way, um, that this struggle that a lot of athletes go through, I'll just say it one more time. That's the fourth time I said it. <laughs> a struggle that a lot of athletes have gone through fifth time. And um, it's, it's something that um, a lot of athletes <laughs> don't want to talk about because it is so challenging. And I really admire people like Michael Phelps um, who have come forward and said that, you know, it, you just have this drive. You live in these four and eight year cycles for the, your entire life. And all of a sudden you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this training regime where you, you know, you are so regimented to be on time, to be accountable, to be ready for your next competition or meet. And and then you don't. Um, I'm still very lucky to have like the opportunities I have now um, where I, I'm working all the time. I'm busy all the time. I'm so grateful. I love what I do. I feel like this is what I've been meant to do my entire life, um, even more so than I did have this feeling than when I was an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um but I still like that daily grind, that four year is, you know, your long term goals are like what happens in four and eight years. That's that's the focus. And now it's very open ended of like, what do you want to do? It can be anything. And it, it feels like, ah, so, you know, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely having you. Oh, what a fun time. Billionaire businessman Mark Cuban recently invested $600,000 in Eternova, a company that claims it can turn cremation ashes into diamonds. After making a deal on a recent episode of Shark Tank, Cuban now holds a 9% stake in the company, which would be an interesting addition to his portfolio, except industry experts believe that the business is a scam. Diamond expert and gemologist Grant Mobley told Page Six Style, while these companies may be manufacturing synthetic diamonds that look similar to natural diamonds, they are not using ashes from your loved ones to do so. Page Six Style senior reporter Emily Kirkpatrick is here to tell us all about it. Hi, Emily. Hi, guys. Hey, Emily. Thanks for coming on the podcast. So were you watching Shark Tank and you were like, this is impossible? Or how did you stumble upon this alleged scam? Uh, Basically, the episode came out on Sunday and then I just had some gemologist sources I've worked with in the past on like engagement rings and other diamond stories. And they reached out and they're like, hey, like this is actually like a scam that's been going on in our industry for like the last decade. Uh, This is just kind of the latest iteration of it. It's pretty crazy. Someone 
you know, as respected and big as Mark Cuban is investing in this. But like, we'd like to tell the truth about right. what's happening here. And the thing is, it sounds it actually sounds, I guess, like a good idea, I suppose. I mean, that it sounds like something that people might want, somebody out there totally. might want. But basically, is the idea is that sort of the science behind it is bogus? It's just, yeah, it's totally faulty science. It's bad science. And they're using a lot of scientific jargon and these big words that like sound right and they're very confident and they're like, you know, tech people, so they seem trustworthy, but it, it just isn't backed up. And actually, the guy who wrote the original report, Robert James, um, he started investigating this claim because he thought it sounded good, and he was like, wow, what a what a beautiful way to remember your deceased loved ones. He started looking at the science, and he's like, it just isn't there. Mm. Huh. It's funny that you say that, because I was watching a lot of uh, their presence on YouTube, this company, and the founder, Adele Archer, is looking dead at the camera, and she's like, she's really pulling on your heartstrings, and she says, it's less of a business and more of a calling. These are remarkable people who earned their diamonds by the way they rocked life. Right, and a lot of what um, Robert points out in his report is the kind of language she uses around this and how it's emotional, it tugs at your heartstrings, and it creates this kind of beautiful imagery that actually does mean a whole lot. Um, he actually went back and looked at Eterneva's website in 2018 in the Wayback Machine, and he said the original quote was that they grow a stunning diamond structured by your loved one's DNA. Ooh. And he's like, that's just, yeah, DNA has nothing to do with diamond formation, right. even synthetic right. diamond create. It's like, it's carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all it can ever be. So she's really implying basically that your loved one's blood is somehow in this diamond or yeah. something. It's just like, not real. Wow. Totally. The other thing about this that's sort of um, really unfair, I guess, is that the diamonds actually cost more, or they're very expensive, right? It's not yeah, like, and, and are they synthetic diamonds, but they're still more than regular diamonds? Yeah, or? they're synthetic diamonds made in the lab. Um, so usually synthetic diamonds are much cheaper than mine diamonds, obviously, because mine diamonds come with a lot of labor and they're held in vaults to increase their value. Um, but these synthetic diamonds, the cheapest one retails for about $3,000 and they can go to over $10,000. And yeah, Grant was telling me you can buy a real mine diamond for that's the same size, the same clarity, and it costs way less mm. than what they're charging you for this. And so has Mark Cuban or Shark Tank commented yet or said anything about this? Uh, not really. Mark Cuban emailed me personally and told me he could put me in touch with Adele. I was already in touch with Adele. And that was kind of the end of our conversation. Um, Adele, you know, told me her side of the story. Uh, she tried to explain that there are carbonates left over in the ashes, that it's calcium carbonate. But actually, when I, I followed up with Robert afterwards, because I was like, I don't know the science, you know, is this true? And he said, calcium carbonate is seashells. Hmm. That's what she, not bones. She was telling me that's what bones are made of. And he says, bones are made of calcium phosphorate. Yeah, I thought one thing that was really <laughs> interesting was her comment in the piece that you wrote I was I it's like I knew it was coming and I assume like usually in a case like this the comment is going to be something like you know this is absurd or they hung up on you or whatever her comment was like very lengthy and dense mm -hmm. with kind of scientific facts and information mm -hmm. it didn't really even address some of the claims that it was bogus it just was like a, a list of kind of comprehensive and impressive sounding scientific facts Facts. Yeah. So in a way, I, it, it was it was an interesting way to address it. Like I was like, huh, what? Right. You know? And even the beginning of her quote kind of like admits that I'm correct, where it's like most of the carbon does burn off in mm. the cremation process. It's like, yeah, actually, all of it burns off. But <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I right. mean, that's interesting because another thing that he brought up in your article was that the cremation diamond industry operates with no government right. oversight or review, and there's no formal control. Right. So they can kind of make these claims, and they can say that they're doing this stuff, and uh, they're not going to get in trouble for it, and they're making millions and millions of dollars. And he said that's kind of like the worst part of it is, like, people keep investing it. Yeah. I think also the other thing that's interesting about it, which I've never thought of, is, like, this possibility that other, you know, I wonder what Shark Tank's um, process is just for vetting some of these mm-hmm. things because mm-hmm. I, I'd assume that there could be other uh, pitches that are, you know, scams or some of the people have sort of fraudulent, you know, backgrounds. It just brings up this sort of interesting thing for the yeah, show to like deal with. How and much then, are like, they looking into these companies and, like, yeah. And how much did Mark Cuban it. invest? 600000 which I guess wow. for like a billionaire is not right. Right. not devastating. <laughs> Still a lot. And I mean, even on the episode, a lot of the sharks were kind of complaining to the company because they're like, you already have these huge multi-million dollar investors in this company. Like, you're just coming on this show for like PR. Right. Wow. You just want one of us associated with you for like good press. And so it's like kind of even scarier that like yeah. Mark Cuban just invested 600000 but these people are getting millions and millions from all these other shadow right. investors. And I wonder if, you know, your kind of investigation on this has given him some pause because last night I was on his website reviewing the companies <laughs> that he has invested in and it is not mentioned. Interesting. So what other scams have you come across recently that have kind of piqued your interest? Uh, well, I reported a, a scam yesterday. A scam is a strong word for it. It's, a, <laughs> it's an overvalued item, uh-huh. I would say. Uh, Neiman Marcus does these like fantasy gifts mm. every year for the holidays, um, and they're offering a new one this year. It's four hundred thousand dollars, and basically you get a <laughs> a ticket to Kim Kardashian's makeup artist masterclass, mm-hmm. uh, and you get a one hour makeup session with him. So he does and it on you, or you learn how to do the makeup. It, he does it on you, mm-hmm. and supposedly you learn through the process. But it's an hour maximum, and he'll gift you some of the products that he uses. Some, wow. not all so, of them. Not all of them. Some of them. And yes. wait, it's for how much money? Four hundred thousand dollars. Wow. And is where's that money going? Fifteen thousand dollars of it goes to a charity, uh-huh. which is Neiman Marcus's charity, which um, supports the arts in cities where Neiman Marcus has stores hmm. or locations where they have stores. Which kind of to me is like, does the location where Neiman Marcus store is really needed? Right. Neiman Marcus tends charity. to be in right. affluent areas. Right. <laughs> Plus, you'd need to have some other process to put on your face to keep the makeup on for longer. Yeah. Like shellac. Where do you go with a $400,000 <laughs> face right, of makeup? Right, exactly. Like, where do you go? Now I have to go to a ball. A well, bar he mitzvah. also offers to, he'll post the video of him doing your makeup on his Instagram. So you're so I think paying for clout. Yeah, I think he's <laughs> saying that's where the value comes from, his clout. Yeah. Hmm. Being Kim wow. Kardashian adjacent on the grid. Well, thanks so much for schooling us in scams, Emily, and what to look out for. Of course, anytime. <laughs> it's time for our favorite part of the show. Let's take a look in the Page Six vault to see what ancient celebrity juicy exclusive we've uncovered from yesteryear. Let's check out a story from 2010. Nine years ago, Page Six published the headline, Cosmo Editor Wants Justice for Concussion at DVF Fashion Show. A Cosmopolitan editor is still sore over a freak accident at a Diane von Furstenberg show more than four years ago that left her with a concussion. A fashion and accessories market editor was in the audience at the designer show in September 2005 when a light fixture fell on her head. Von Furstenberg apologized and sent over a bouquet of flowers but it still resulted in a lawsuit. 
You know, Maggie, the thing that I'm the most shocked about about this item is that the vault is in 2010. And that was nine years ago. But in my mind, it is 2010. Ugh, in my mind, I'm it's like 2006. <laughs> Isn't it 2010 like now? Like how could the vault be Ugh. nine years? I mean, that that's a legit vault. It right. was nine years ago. But to me, yeah. vault 2010's like yesterday. You saw DVF actually out in the wild. I did. So this week I went to see Darren Brown's Secret, which is actually a super fun show. I heard it's amazing. One of our other colleagues saw it and like her mind was like literally blown. Although I think, and this is so me, like I, she described me the show and it sounds amazing, but I think I figured out that, I think I figured the trick out. Well, go ahead. We don't want to ruin it for anyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was great because I was there to see this British mentalist who was very entertaining and who else was there but Diane von Furstenberg on the greatest triple date of all time, which is Diane von Furstenberg and Barry Diller joined by Bill and Hillary Clinton joined by Chelsea Clinton and her husband Mark. All in a row. I was like, "Uh, excuse me, you don't want to read these minds, Darren Brown? There is probably a lot of interesting material here. Did he he use them in the No, he he didn't. audience members. He does use audience members, but I'm sure, I, I wonder if he just went for normal people who had other things or to talk maybe, about. Or maybe, yeah, or like Secret Security would have intervened Right. There was definitely, I mean, Secret Service sitting behind them, and Bill was kind of, people were flocking to him for selfies. Diane, I, I felt like no one was really going up to her. And I'm like, really? this woman invented the wrap dress. This is a staple in wardrobes around the world. She's a little less approachable seeming than mm. a Bill Clinton, I gotta say. Yeah, but I, I was actually sitting next to someone I did not know, an older woman, and we were talking about it. And I was like, oh, that's Diane von Furstenberg. And she was like, oh, that's her? Like, she didn't know. I find her to be super recognizable. She's kind of a big presence. She ha- yeah, she's New had York. the same kind of iconic look with her big hair. Yeah, she for had a, a reality TV show. Yeah, and I'm just like, ugh. I wish that people would refer to me like I would rather be referred to as like a British mentalist that just sounds good as opposed yeah. to like a Jewish neurotic. <laughs> you know, like that sounds so debonair. Well, that's it for this episode of We Here. To hear the latest We Hear episodes, be sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your preferred podcast platforms. You can hear more of the hottest celebrity news and gossip by signing up for our newsletter and by visiting page6.com. We'll be back next Monday with more Page 6 exclusives. See you then.